Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 1.7, Conversion. Essentially, it's all gone horribly wrong, hasn't it? I mean, broadly, I have an episode per century when I embarked on this, and we've already had two on the 7th century, and the blessed Anglo-Saxons aren't even converted yet. The problem, gentle listeners, is what my mother delighted to call verbal diarrhoea. So... Promise this week we'll get on with it. Always had a soft spot for Pender, though, is the other problem, though in all likelihood, if we'd actually met, he'd have cut my heart out of my chest and eaten it with a little seasoning. Anyway, never apologise, never explain, so onward. This week, it's two things. A quick summary of how our kingdoms end the 7th century and the progress of the conversion to Christianity. The first is, in theory, easily done. We were pretty much there at the end of last week anyway, to be honest. Northumbria, I think we'd done. Expansion slows up in the late 7th century, but nonetheless, in the competition of greatest Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of world history, Northumbria ends the century right up there with the big boys. It's a kingdom that stretches from coast to coast, east to west, and right up to just south of Edinburgh, and a cultural and religious powerhouse. Its king at the end of the century was the illegitimate son of a king and an Irish princess, and as such demonstrates the importance of the Celtic people and kingdoms, culture and religion in Northumbria. Northerners have always been different. Can't play footy like us Midlanders for starters. Moving on. After being hustled off the field of Winwade in 655 by a couple of loyal thanes pretending to be peasants, Wolf here made the greatest comeback since Lazarus. And really, I ought to spend a deal of time talking about him. He's a bit of a god. But it's white rabbit time, seriously. I can feel my brain dribbling out of my ear. And if we finish this episode still in the 7th century, the rest will come out with it. When Jackie, Buffy and Will wrote that song about lifting Mercia up where we belong, it was clearly Wolf here they were talking about rather than love. Wolf here re-established the line of Pender within three years of Winwade. And by the time of his death in 675, Mercia included the Kingdom of Lindsay, Bost, East Anglia and the East Saxons rode roughshod over the Jewissa, south of the Thames and even onto the Isle of Wight. Unlike Dad, Wolf here was also Christian. And finally, and interestingly, it looks as though it's under Wolf here that London becomes a Mercian town. It all went seriously pear-shaped at the end of his reign with a nasty defeat at the hands of the Northumbrians, but no matter, succession moved to brother Ethelred, who put things right again. Although, having said that, clearly everything wasn't plain sailing, since his wife was, quote, murdered by her own people, the Mercian chieftains. Bede quite often lets fall these one-liners, behind which is clearly a story we all want to know about, but is completely unrecoverable. Anyway, Aethelred then retired to a monastery, and rather than the throne going to Aethelred's son, succession then moved back to Wolfhere's son who then in turn took early retirement and died a monk in Rome, while Aethelred's son became king. It's all terribly grown up and English. After you. No, no, no. After you, please. 
but also summarises the attitude of who's in line for the throne. You draw from the pool of Aethelings. It's not necessarily the eldest son. Without wanting to summarise too much, East Anglia basically does her own thing, which is East Anglia all over to this day, but essentially plays second fiddle to Mercia. Kent remains largely independent and rich, but given her position tucked away in the bottom right-hand corner, her opportunity for expansion was strictly limited. As for the South Saxons, well, it's a tiny place, no records. Essentially, no one hears anything of her except for when one of the big boys walks all over her. I exaggerate for effect, but not much. All of which brings us to the Juissa, that lot south of the Thames, west of the South Saxons and east of the British kingdoms in Devon and Cornwall. To history, of course, it's a place known as Wessex. And that change probably happens in the short and rather colourful reign of a man called Cadewalla, which is a chance to tell you a story. Last time we ended by talking about how much more structured Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were becoming, which is true, but I'd hate to give you the wrong impression and give you the idea that England was not still bandit country and fertile ground for adventurers, in particular for anyone with a smidgen, however smidgeny, of royal blood in their veins. Also, I'd hate to give you the idea that every royal family was like Mercia, politely passing the crown around on the basis that the best man won. So, let me tell you the story of a colourful character of the Jewissa, Cade Waller. Though before I do, I might note a couple of things. Firstly, after Penda had descended on the Jewissa and given them a beating for rejecting his sister, things got a little crazy in the land of the Jewissa. Their lands were made up of a number of regions, Wiltshire, Hampshire, Somerset, for example, and those regions seem to have been semi-autonomous at this time, with each of them in turn providing a king for the whole of the Jewissa. So that's one interesting thing about the way that Wessex used to be organised. The other interesting thing is that one of those gasp is a woman, Saxburger. The entry in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is very flat in tone. 672, King Chenwall passed away and Saxburger, his queen, reigned for one year after him. The implication in this terribly laconic and unexcitable entry is that there's nothing terribly unusual about this concept. And it's also worth noting that there are later queens who are crowned as co-rulers in Anglo-Saxon England, as opposed to queen consorts. And that speaks of greater latitude and equality for women than in later Norman times. Having said that, Saxburger is the only queen that appears in the Anglo-Saxon regnal lists, so let's not hang out the bunting quite yet. Anyway, back to Cade Waller. Cade Waller was an aetheling of the Jewissa. The king of the Jewissa at the time was Chentween. And at the time, a very broad story of the Jewissa in the 7th century has been of a second league nation fighting it out for bragging rights on the eastern edge of their kingdom with Kent and the South Saxons, gradually pushing the Celts backwards in the southwest, Devon and Cornwall, and arguing furiously with Mercia over their northern boundary which gets established as the River Thames, essentially, but it goes back and forth a bit. We know about Cade Waller from Bede, who records the epitaph for us. This epitaph goes like this. His high estate, wealth, kin, a mighty crown, his strongholds, chieftains, spoils, his own renown, and that of all his sires Cade Waller forsook, inspired by love of heaven that he might look, a pilgrim king, 
on Peter and his shrine. Which I think counts as doggerel. But anyway, essentially, to go back to the beginning. In his youth, Cadewall of the Aetherling was a spare. And for whatever reason, an inconvenience in the way, a problem. He was also, incidentally, a pagan in a country that was now officially Christian. So like the young lion cuffed about by the alpha male, he had to leave the pride, and we find him hanging out in what used to be the grubbiest, grottiest, and most inhospitable regions of the southeast, the Chilton Hills and the Weald of Sussex. Actually, it sounds as though he was thrown out. Cadewalla, however, was not happy with the life most grubby, so he scraped together a following, including his brother Mool, dusted down his aetheling certificate and headed for the easiest target, the South Saxons. Mool and Cadewalla didn't hold back. Bede tells us that he, quote, wasted the province with slaughtering and plunder. Which would explain why the great men of the South Saxons were not happy with this piece of banditry by an aetheling of the Jewissa, and before you can say knife, Cadewalla was forcibly removed from the land of the South Saxons and was back in the wilderness. So, back he headed to his own tribe, the Jewissa. And would you believe it, in 685 he tipped up as their king. We don't know exactly what happened, but burning and destroying was on his mind, so the very next year, 686, he decided to head for the Isle of Wight and do some pillaging there. But before he set off, he wanted to stack the odds in his favour. So he gave a great oath that if he conquered the island, he'd give a quarter of it to God. All went well, in the sense that Cadewalla conquered the island, slaughtered as many as he could, and forced the remainder to convert to Christianity. Bede tells us a moving story in which three Dutish princes escaped to the mainland, only for Cadewalla to follow, reducing the South Saxons to, quote, a state of slavery and the prince is to be caught and ordered to be executed. But it's okay, says Bede, because happily they were converted and baptised by the local priest. They were then executed, of course, but at least they'd been baptised. Next, it was Kent's turn that very same year, and again success blessed the brutal Cadewaller, and he installed his brother Mool as king of Kent. The Kentish men were no happier than the South Saxons, which led to Mool being burned with twelve of his companions, followed by the obligatory savage reprisals by Cadewalla. In 688, therefore, from a standing start, Cadewalla had gone from king of a couple of dormice in the Chiltern Hills to king of Wessex, the Isle of Wight, Sussex, Kent and overlord of the East Saxons. Mercia, here we come. But no... Cadewalla then decided to hang up the golden, if rather bloody, axe, give it all up, to go and see, live and die in Rome as a monk. Words fail me. Meteoric is one word for it. One of the things that make me laugh about all of this is that the venerable Bede is so busy dribbling about the fact that Cadewalla donated 300 hides of land to the church, was converted to Christianity and became a monk, that he doesn't really seem to turn a hair at all at the slaughtering and mayhem. I suppose that's the way the young Saxon aetheling is supposed to be. Cadewalla was styled Rex Saxonum, King of the Saxons, which effectively was what he was once he had brought the South and East Saxons into his um, protection. The name stuck to a degree, in that from now on in they are West Saxons rather than the Jewissa. The other surprising thing is this hopping off to Rome thing. We've seen it several times and it will happen again. In fact, Cadewalla's successor was Ina, 
and Ina also gave up the throne and travelled to Rome. It speaks of very great commitment to Christianity to the fervour of the converted. Though I note that Caedwalla died in 689 very soon after he'd arrived there, so maybe he knew something was up. Speaking of Ina, he's the king that takes us into the 8th century, and a thoroughly successful one he is too. But he's successful not because he continues the heroic age of the Anglo-Saxons, i.e. the expansion and growth of the new kingdoms. In fact, despite a few efforts, he failed to make any great headway against the British kingdoms of the south-west. No, his fame comes through his law codes, which we'll discuss at some future point. He was a king after Alfred the Great's heart, a builder, a patron of the church, a lawmaker, rather than a warrior and empire builder, drenched in the blood of his enemies and giver of golden rings. Ina lasts until 726, when he resigned and went to Rome as a pilgrim. Reputedly, he set up the scholar Saxonum in the Borgo region of Rome, which then became known as the English district, where the pilgrims would stay when they went to visit. OK, so much for the secular, now as promised, on to the religious. The last time we spoke specifically about the conversion of the pagan Anglo-Saxons into good church-going Christians was right at the beginning in the reign of Ethelbert of Kent. We'd noted that after an initial flying start, actually things had stuttered a bit. The East Saxons reverted to type after the flow of magic bread stopped coming. And also it's very easy to make the assumption that just because a king converted that all his subjects did too and that is not a safe assumption. Actually the path of true love wasn't easy. What we can say is that by 700 Christianity was the official religion throughout England and that by the mid-8th century paganism was being actively repressed. So as you can see this was a multi-generational process. There were setbacks along the way, the East Saxons and their magic bread problem, for example, but there were events, war, pestilence, famine, that had the Saxons questioning their new faith and asking, where is the love? As an example, in 664, Bede wrote of, quote, A sudden pestilence, raging far and wide with fierce destruction, and that laid low a great multitude of men. And in this case, Bede noted that some went back to their pagan gods. So in actual fact, the conversion wasn't easy. Pope Gregory had been careful in advising missionaries not to destroy pagan shrines. Often pagan shrines and festivals were transformed instead into Christian ones. So on the one hand, this would have helped normalise things. On the other hand, it created confusion about the differences of the new religion. So, Raidwald and his casual setting up of a Christian shrine amongst his pagan ones is a good example. In these early days, actually, the role of women was critical. For the pagan Anglo-Saxon male, Christianity was really something of a problem. Explaining to a warrior used to the idea that his job was to kill, maim, destroy and steal, and that from now on he should turn the other cheek and be meek, mild and humble, really was something of a tricky sell. It was mega confusing for kings. After all, the king's very reason for existence was to look after his people and help them grow in power and glory and influence. But women had a role which gave them no such dilemma, and they seemed to have taken on Christianity with unalloyed enthusiasm. The marriage of Berta to Ethelbert is one example. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Nor was the conversion effort homogenous, or indeed Christianity itself homogenous. During the 7th century, much of the conversion effort was carried out by religious communities, monasteries in effect. These groups didn't necessarily follow the same rule, although St. Benedict, who established the rule that would become the most common standard, died in 647. And in fact, the variations between the different groups were significant and led to a kind of mini-power struggle. Broadly speaking, there are three groups who come to England and try to convert the new natives we've noted that Western Britain wasn't affected in the same way as Eastern England and that there was some survival of Christianity there. In Ireland, Christianity had continued to flourish. The Irish practice held that pilgrimage was central and that this meant a lifetime away from family and Ireland. There was a very strong strand of the ascetic in the Irish tradition and the search for solitude. There was also something of the fire and brimstone approach, which had pagan Anglo-Saxons quaking once they got going. Irish monks and missionaries worked away amongst the Picts as well as the English, and had been in northern Britain in particular for a couple of generations before those glory boys of St Augustine turned up. The most famous of them, St Columba, set up a monastery on Iona, an island in the Inner Hebrides in western Scotland and by the later 7th century, Iona sat at the centre of a network of monasteries throughout Ireland, Scotland and Northern Britain. As we've seen, links between the Northumbrian kings and the Irish were close, such as Oswald's 15-year exile there. And then, in 635, another famous Celtic monk, Aidan, established another monastery on Lindisfarne, an island off the east coast of Northumbria, which would be central to Northumbrian culture and religious life. No history of the conversion would be complete without then mentioning St Cuthbert, and sorry if this is something of a digression. Cuthbert, to some degree, seems to have also come from the Irish tradition and was a monk and early bishop of Lindisfarne in the 7th century. Until the arrival of one Thomas Becket many centuries later, the cult of St Cuthbert was the most popular and famous in England. In his first few centuries, Cuthbert's body and shrine was seriously peripatetic, wandering away all over the place, partly because of the Vikings, but also partly because, well, there just seems to have been something of a wanderlust problem. Eventually, the story goes that in 995, when Cuthbert's body was on the move again, suddenly the saint's body became too heavy for the priests to move. Given his three centuries of wandering about, I can understand Cuthbert's feelings. Enough! So, a few days of fasting and mathering by the attendant monks followed, during which, thankfully... Cuthbert appeared in a dream and said he needed to go to Dunholm. Unfortunately, he failed to give directions, which was a shame. Dear, oh dear, more mathering ensued. Then fortunately, the monks came on a milkmaid, looking for her dun cow, which she thought was on Dunholm, which turned out to be a rather special wooded hill on a peninsula in a bend in the River Weir, which ended up, in turn, becoming the city of Durham, with a long and glorious history ahead of it, as the centre of the Palatinate of the North, where the Normans would build the most stunning cathedral. While I continue to digress, the Anglo-Saxons were delightfully potty about their saints. There are literally billions of them. 
Well, actually, literally not billions, but many, many. And if you happen to read Bede, it's soaked in miracles. It seems impossible to spend an afternoon without encountering some sort of holy light or miraculous natural phenomenon. Seriously, awash with God's daily presence. When the Normans arrived, they treat the poor old Anglo-Saxon saints with some contempt, actually. And although they're not officially de-sainted or whatever the process is, they kind of sink without trace. It was a kind of superior French thing going on. It's fine. We're used to it. Sorry, back to the Irish monks and their evangelising. Although links with the north of England were the strongest, there are some signs of the Celtic church further south. And of course, what we don't know about is the network of individuals evangelising day to day, which never officially gets recorded, and may in fact be the most significant activity of all. OK, so the first group was the Irish. A second notable group were the Franks from Gaul. Generally, they only followed into England after Augustine's arrival, but of course the close links with Kent made them particularly influential in the south-east. And just as Northumbrian exiles often ended up in Ireland, so did Kentish exiles end up in Frankish courts. Many of the liturgical differences are too technical for me to get enthusiastic about, but the Franks, and indeed Italians, tended to emphasise the grand display and ceremonial more than the ascetic Irish tradition, the rich, secular role of the bishop, as well as his religious role. Third, of course, were the Italians, sent by Pope Gregory the Great from Rome in answer to Athelbert's appeal. Italy, though a shadow of its former self, was still light years ahead of England in the richness of its economy and towns, with a relatively large pool of highly educated religious men who could form part of a mission. But actually there is a fourth group. Despite Bede having something of a go at the British for not converting the Anglo-Saxons when they arrive, it's very likely that in fact this did happen to some degree at least, especially in the western regions of England, where the proportion of the population that derived from the existing British population was probably higher than in the east. The kingdom of the Huissa, for example, seems to have been Christian earlier than the rest of Mercia, though that could be Pender's fault, of course. So one of the problems, then, was that there was more than one tradition evangelising to the ordinary people. Now, some of these differences are, in fact, ironed out at the famous Synod of Whitby in 664. The Synod of Whitney effectively chose the practices of Rome over that of Iona and Ireland, and moved the northern diocese to York rather than Lindisfarne. It is easy to overrate the Synod of Whitby. In one sense, it's just one of many convocations sorting out many rules and regulations at the time. And there are signs that even in Ireland, the practices of Iona were being replaced anyway by the practices of Rome. But the Synod of Whitney was definitive and brought an improvement in clarity. The other thing that's worth mentioning about the Synod is that the role of the kings in the whole process, actually, was absolutely central in both debate and decision-making. One thing always to remember about Anglo-Saxon England after the conversion is the closeness of church and state. There's little of that separation we expect to see between the two. Abbots, abbesses like Hild of Whitby, bishops and archbishops were an integral part of the king's great council of the wise, and it's a tradition that will continue well into the early modern age. The likelihood is that village by village during the 7th and 8th centuries there is much confusion about the practice and rules of the new faith. In one of Bede's writings, a community in Northumbria complains, quote, How the new worship is to be undertaken, nobody knows. 
and there would have been many communities well into the 8th century where a priest or bishop very rarely came. The work of one of the most influential of the early church leaders, Archbishop Theodore, survived, laying down a series of rules and advice which gives some insight into the confusion caused by the new religion and some of the bizarre rules it imposed, bizarre at least for the pagan mind. So, for example, no sex during Lent. Why? And for three days before communion. Why? Forbidding a man to see his wife naked. Why? And the complex rules about consanguinity, including the fact that you couldn't marry godparents even if they were close to you in age. And meanwhile, people gave up the old habits very slowly and reluctantly, if at all. Theodore was horrified that English women, when attempting to cure fevers, placed their daughters on rooftops or in ovens. He prescribed stern penances on those that carried out practices such as carrying amulets or burning grain in the presence of corpses, hangovers from a bygone age. Even at the end of the 8th century, the Northumbrian churchman Alcuin wrote castigating Englishmen, quote, wearing amulets, thinking them sacred. There's a penitential from the 8th century condemning the taking of vows on ash trees. Actually, all of this isn't confined to the early centuries of Christianity in England. It's a sort of behaviour that continues to worry and irritate the church throughout the Middle Ages. So, although it's difficult to know exactly when pagan practices are finally extinguished in England, they probably linger on in the more remote places far longer than we imagine. From the 8th century officially, though, at least, Christianity became the official religion of England. Anglo-Saxon England then had all the attributes of the newly enthusiastic and newly converted and went slightly potty with their new religion. Now don't get me wrong, there are good hard-headed reasons why the Anglo-Saxon kings lead and approve the conversion. Those Anglo-Saxon kings of yesteryear were in fact not just hat racks, they knew what they were about. As we've mentioned, they were eager to add the patina of Romanitas to their rule. They loved the access to writing skills, the aura of godly approved kingship that gave them gravitas. They dribbled at the prospect they dribbled at the prospect of a network of priests all singing their praises to their subjects. All good. But there's a flavour of belief and enthusiasm that just feels different, even to the later, still madly religious Middle Ages. One sign of it is the delightful stream of English kings we've talked about ending their days in monasteries or in Rome. You've got to admire King Siebert of East Anglia sticking up for his new religious pacifist principles as Pender's axemen carved him up. The cascade, the avalanche of Anglo-Saxon saints, the closeness of the relationship between church and state, and orthodoxy. One of the earliest heresies, Pelagius in the 4th century, had been a Brit. But those Anglo-Saxons were seriously orthodox and toe the line. Until we get to John Wycliffe in the 14th century, England is the goody-two-shoes of Christianity, a fully paid-up member of the Shiny Shoes Club. One of the manifestations of this is the wave of endowments and foundations which started right from the off. Bede noted of Ethelbert that he gave many gifts to the bishops of each of these churches and that of Canterbury. And he also added both lands and possessions for the maintenance of the bishops' retinues. King Oswu of Northumbria gave land to found twelve monasteries, each with ten hides of land. Cade Waller of the West Saxons, as we've seen, gave 300 hides of the Isle of Wight after he'd given it a good ravaging. The great monasteries such as Monkwomouth in Northumbria came with scores of hides of land. 
These grants also created a new format of landholding in Anglo-Saxon England. So last week we talked about lane land, the normal way that the crown gave grants to its followers, gifts for their lifetime. Now the church wasn't having any of that, and understandably. If a church needed ten hides of land to maintain it now, it was going to need that forever. After all, no one would ever conceive of a church being closed and converted into high-value residential accommodation, surely. So what happened is that the book insisted that the land was granted in perpetuity and they wrote it down. This therefore becomes known as bookland, literally written in a book. The church became adept at maintaining their charters and indeed adept at forging charters, all for the greater glory of God, of course. But this concept of permanently alienating land seems to have been a little tricky for the Anglo-Saxons to grasp. There's some evidence that the permanent alienation of land gave some kings a problem, as enthusiasm outstripped supply. Thanes and kings insisted on continuing to believe that giving away land didn't really mean giving away land, or it certainly didn't mean that they gave away all their rights. And so, for example, they continued to expect to be able to appoint the priest to the church they'd endowed with their land. Anglo-Saxon England acquired a church administrative structure as well, of course. There was a single archbishop initially, which reflected the Roman diocese until Pope Gregory III in 735 set the cat amongst the pigeons and created one at York as well, leading to many happy centuries of arguing about the precedence between Canterbury and York. Bishoprics were created and usually reflected the tribal formation and nature of the country. Every king wanted their archbishop and sometimes that meant their cathedra were movable. I think that brings us to the end of this episode and to the end of the 7th century. Though maybe one more thing. In Ethelbert's Law Code of 600, the church was essentially fitted into the existing system of customary laws by a church eager to establish itself. In 695, at the end of the century, there's another set of laws in Kent by King Wichard this time. These laws include sections prohibiting pagan sacrifice, enforcing Christian marriage, the Sabbath, and banning the eating of meat during prescribed feasts. England was now essentially Christian, or at least officially Christian. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Next time we'll have an episode about the revival of towns and the economy and take a wee nibble at the 8th century. Don't forget to hop along if you get time to see what the Agora Podcast Network are doing, a group of independently-minded podcasters to which I belong. The website is at agorapodcastnetwork.com. Good luck, everyone, and have a great couple of weeks. 